Hey, Twim family, Merry Christmas to all of you. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in to This Week in Mormons. We've got a great show this week. As we did last year when we had the hosts of This Week in Mormons rotate around and tell personal Christmas stories, some funnies, you know, some more meaningful, some a little bit more pensive, perhaps. We thought we'd do the same thing this year. We've got some new faces. We've even got some friends of the show who don't actually host This Week in Mormons who have been kind enough to share some stories with us. And we're really excited to get to all of that. So big thanks up front to everyone in our community uh, who has participated in this little episode this week. We hope it brings you some Christmas cheer and helps do its its little part to set the tone uh, for what we hope is a joyous Christmas week for you, especially during this, a year like no other. And for many, that would be... Uh, Something we'd be saying in a in a pejorative sense, right? 2020 has been something else. Uh, so we'd like to try to do our best to make 2020 count here as we get to the end. Uh, before we get to any content, of course, I'd just like to remind you, please visit us at thisweekinmormons.com and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever it might be. We really hope you'll hit that subscribe button and uh, help us grow and help us be wonderful. Uh, likewise, big thanks to our Patreon supporters. You guys are the best. Thanks for so much for supporting the show. If you want to support the show on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash This Week in Mormons, where you can pledge whatever financial contribution you deem fit per month. And in saying that, I think it has to be at least a dollar. Like if you think we're worth a penny, I don't think they'll even let you do that. I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, we appreciate all your support and hope you'll, of course, join us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. Um, I also have my guitar this week. I don't really know why. I'm just kind of sitting here with it as a segue in between uh, different speakers. First off, kicking things off, Jared Jones, our writer of our uh, Latter-day Saint video vault, Colin, is going to tell you a story about joining a very fun choir with a special guest who showed up near the end and how it all relates to Christmas. So we're going to kick this off and uh, send it over to Jared. Take us to Massachusetts. Good sir. I have always loved being in a choir, and a choir at Christmas time, it's simply the best. As a self-proclaimed choir geek, I still remember some of the Christmas anthems I sang in high school choirs and small groups. I enjoyed singing in sacrament meetings where my father often led the choir, and I helped anchor down the tenor section. While in college, I would purposely pick the fall section of the open enrollment choir so I could sing Christmas music at our semester end concert. My last year in college, I finally auditioned to be in the Mormon Youth Chorus, an official church performing group for those age 18 to 26. They would perform at concerts in the Tabernacle, the Assembly Hall, and would also sing at the General Conference. We also did concerts at the Tabernacle in Provo, which is now the Provo City Center Temple. If you remember seeing the Mormon Youth Chorus on church broadcasts, you may have the impression that some of them did not look so youthful, 
but that's a story for another day. My schedule wasn't a lot better than it had been in years past, and I'd seen ads about the auditions for many years, but I finally decided to bite the bullet and go ahead and do it. Before I knew it, I found myself in the office of Robert C. Bowden, the director of the Mormon Youth Chorus and Symphony at the church office building, and I attended my first rehearsal later that evening. So, spoiler alert, I got in. Being in the choir really built my testimony of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, and I made friends that I still keep in touch with even 20 years later. We had the chance to have many Christmas concerts as members of the MoYoC, as we jokingly called it. Each of the Christmas concerts was special in its own way. In addition to the major concerts we would do, a portion of each rehearsal was open to the public and we performed 30-minute mini-concerts for anybody who would come to the tabernacle. These were really popular during the holiday season, as many people wanted to hear some great Christmas music when they had the time. I remember many performances, in particular one of Silent Night, one of the piece Candlelight Carol, and then a performance of Candle in the Window from Home Alone. These performances really touched me deeply and really helped me feel the spirit of Christ and Christmas. One of the most memorable Christmas and choir experiences, however, took place in the days and months before the holidays as we were preparing for the season's concerts. Around the same time, church leaders decided to phase out the Mormon Youth Chorus. President Hinckley really wanted to focus on building the Mormon Tabernacle Choir as the eminent performing group of the church and wanted to focus all resources on them. There were a lot of rumors as to why, when, and how flying around rehearsal one night. We finished a full rehearsal by working on a few sections of the Hallelujah Chorus with the symphony, who was also at our practice that day. Brother Bowden asked for our attention and then said a special guest would be joining us. As we quieted down, President Hinckley then walked onto the conductor's podium and spent the next several minutes thanking us for our efforts with the choir and explaining the reasons for the change. He finished his remarks and turned to go, but Brother Bowden handed him a baton, pretty much pushed him back to the podium, and told everyone to get ready to sing the Hallelujah Chorus, with President Hinckley conducting. Now, the Hallelujah Chorus is probably one of the most famous choral pieces. It's the great climax of Part 2 of The Messiah, which is an oratorio on the life of Christ by George Friedrich Handel, who felt inspired as he composed it in a very short period of time. This chorus in particular is fun to sing, because it has many moving parts, and they all come together many times in a unified hallelujah. Brother Bowden got us started, and we had practiced it so much we could do it really without a conductor. But there was President Hinckley standing in front of us, awkwardly waving his arms in time with the music. He looked very uncomfortable. We sang the whole piece with Brother Bowden just coming in to cue us on the final notes. President Hinckley just said, that was great, but I have to go, and quickly left as quickly as he came. That night and in the coming months, I remembered that experience for the novelty of it. It's the prophet. He's leading a choir. Isn't that crazy? But later, I remembered it for what it meant to have the leader of the church spend time with us, to thank us for doing something that we loved anyway. He didn't really want to lead the choir that night, but he did. Perhaps because he saw so much how we wanted to share our testimonies with him by sharing a piece of music. He decided in that moment to just say, go ahead and serve us. And that service brought a smile to my face and joy to my heart. It still does. I hope you all have enjoyed your favorite Christmas music this year. And if it's, you haven't, 
well, it's not too late. I hope the music you listen to in this festive season gives you strong ties to memories, both past and present. Merry Christmas. Okay, so maybe my guitar wasn't the most exciting idea. Anyway, Jared Jones, with an amazing story about the power of music and the holiday season, and of course, getting to meet the prophet in the process. How powerful and wonderful is that? I think that's just terrific. Um, I have not had such an experience before. So hats off to Jared for being cool and thanking him for, uh, for sharing that with us. Next up, we're going to move away from the United States and venture far across the land to the exotic tip of the Malay Peninsula, wherein one Josie Gleave, resident of Singapore, will tell us about some of her Christmas stories and also how she's planning to celebrate Christmas during this time right now, during a pandemic, when options are limited and the, the usual Christmas plans aren't necessarily going to go through the way one might have hoped. Three years ago, my husband and I moved from Australia to France. It was just before Christmas, the first one we would spend without either of our families around. But we were excited at the idea of a festive Christmas in an idyllic French town. As much as we love each other, we didn't want to just stare at one another on Christmas Day playing Uno, so we called an Aussie friend of ours who lives in London. And as luck would have it, he and his girlfriend were staying in Europe for Christmas too, and didn't have plans yet either. We met them in Paris and drove to Strasbourg together. Along the way, we stopped for groceries at a Carrefour so as not to get caught out over the holidays with insufficient supplies. You would think that no shop in Europe is as big or as monstrous as anything found in America, but we were immediately proven wrong by the rural French hypermarket, which was so immense the staff were roller skates to zip around. It took the four of us over two hours to navigate the produce and roam the endless aisles of cheese and yogurt categorized by herd animal, looking for various ingredients to cook our Christmas feast. Cheese, saucisson, scallops, carrots, potatoes, pumpkin, and the main event of the meal, in my mind, a goose. I had never eaten goose, but it seemed like the thing to have at a Christmas in France. The butcher looked confused, either by our poor French or by the assumption that they would have a goose at the ready, and convinced us instead to take home a foie gras stuffed capon, which we later discovered was a castrated rooster. While exhausted and stressed from the reenactment of Shop Till You Drop, we visited the Strasbourg Christmas markets surrounding the cathedral and ate frog's legs and what the American part of me can only describe as hot dogs with cabbage slaw. For Christmas Eve, we were invited to a friend of a friend's place near Sportsheim, so we crossed the border to Germany, mostly to say we had been to Germany and were welcomed by a kind family of university professors, who I imagined were all born in their cap and gowns. Although that day the father of the house wore an apron embroidered with two copulating swine and the inscription, that's how you make bacon, underneath. 
He was mystified when he removed the piece of meat he had been roasting from the oven, only to discover it had shrunk to half the size, which still seems hard to believe, but we laughed and ate it anyway. We all wore terrible sweaters and lit small candles on the Christmas tree. My Christmas stories are simple, but the memories that are most vivid all include food and the people I shared a meal with. Like picking tangerines off the tree in my childhood backyard so my family could have tart citrus juice after opening gifts, or traditional feasts with mashed potato volcanoes that took front and center on my plate. My first Christmas in Australia, I mistakenly filled up on fresh pasta in the first course without realizing that there were six more to come, including a seafood platter, after we swam in the pool. I discovered pavlova with fresh berries and kiwi tucked into whipped cream and meringue, and was truly disgusted by Christmas pudding, these fruitcake domes, sometimes with a glistening whole mandarin in the center because the wetter the better, like a dish sponge you can pick up and wring out. Two years after Strasbourg and Fortsheim, my husband and I called up our Aussie friend in London again. By this time, we were living in Singapore and were desperate for winter. We agreed to meet up in Hungary for Christmas and travel from there to Romania. Upon arrival in Budapest, we immediately went looking for the food markets. At the first stall, we bought a spiraled roll of smoked cheese that we ate too quickly and returned to buy half a dozen more. We visited Christmas markets in every town, eating hot onion and cheese bread, cinnamon chimney cakes, and marzipan. That year, we abandoned the hunt for a Christmas goose and went vegetarian with several dishes of roast parsnips and potatoes, pumpkin and feta, crispy Brussels sprouts, and so much cheese. We sang carols and swapped gag gifts and felt blessed to have friends. These Christmases were never heavy gift-giving extravaganzas. We were all traveling, so luggage space was limited, but they were special all the same, full of festive markets, freezing weather, fried breads, roasting nuts, spiced apple cider, dozens of cheeses and other delights. Food was our gift and the thing we shared together. This year, we cannot travel out of Singapore, and we are sad to miss visiting family or meeting up with our friend. Instead, I have a tapestry of a Christmas tree hanging on the wall and a balsam candle to help convince me the tree is real, or at least three-dimensional. I need anything I can get to help me feel festive in the Singapore heat. I turn up the air conditioning, put on some socks and a sweater, and make a buttered virgin hot toddy and sing to Muppet Christmas Carol. You can bet there will be feasting for days in the lead up to Christmas. It is one of the few times a year we eat for pleasure and without shame. I found a Mexican ingredients shop here in Singapore, so I will attempt to make a tamales, and I'm on the lookout for a decent beef wellington that doesn't cost as much as a cow. So I will don a Santa hat, plan a menu, invite some friends, and together we will sit and make new Christmas memories, and together we will eat. Thanks, Josie. It's a great story. Uh, we've always enjoyed your international travels and the amazing experiences you've had that you can share with us. I also want the record to show, at least for me personally, I don't need to wait until the week of Christmas to to feast, uh, to gorge myself on all kinds of food I should not be eating, uh, whether it's exciting things like crunchy Brussels sprouts or just, you know, whatever the sweet section had at Aldi that week. I can do any of these things. I am I am magical in that sense. Moving on, our next participant 
needs no introduction, so I will not offer one. Take it away. Hey, it's Richie T. from over at the Cultural Hall. I was honored to be asked by Jeff to be a part of this episode. Christmas means so much to me, and uh, I'm glad to be able to share this story with all of you. It's a story that was written by my grandmother, Mavis Stedman. The name of it is Only a Small Part in the Christmas Play. It was my first year teaching drama in junior high, and I was selecting students for the annual Christmas program. I was anxious to prove my ability as a new teacher and wanted only outstanding, talented students in the show. Imagine to my dismay when the first one to try out was Robert. He was the joke of the school, a small, slow, misfit boy who always looked like an unmade bed. He was definitely not what I wanted, but he seemed so eager that I decided to make him one of the 30 choral scripture readers and hide him on the back row. During the next weeks, Robert became my shadow. He was first to memorize his part and was always waiting by my door to practice. Each rehearsal seemed the most important thing in his life. It was his only chance to belong and do something special. Seeing his total dedication, the other students stopped laughing at him and regarded him with new respect. When it came time to choose one solo reader, I picked Robert, much to the astonishment of other teachers. Knowing it would be impossible financially for students to buy costumes, I told each to bring an old white shirt, and I would dye them red, and we would make green ties, and Robert came to me in tears. We don't have any old white shirts at our house, he said. I have six brothers, and we just wear each other's. If I brought one, my little brothers wouldn't have anything to wear. Does this mean that I can't be in the play? I assured him that since I had four sons, I would look through my closets and find one that he could wear. The next week, I brought the 30 brilliantly dyed red shirts straight from my clothesline. Now take these home and have your mothers iron them for the dress rehearsal tomorrow, and be sure you look nice, I added firmly. Minutes before dress rehearsal, as I was nervously straightening crooked green ties, shouting light cues, and tracking down lost props, I saw Robert, in his red dyed shirt, unironed, just the way I had given it to him. Screaming my disapproval, I asked him why it had not been ironed. He explained that his mother had been taken to the hospital suddenly, and in all the confusion, his sisters had forgotten about it, and he couldn't find the iron. I jerked him by the arm and pushed him to the sewing room, muttering all the way, oh, how he couldn't spoil the whole program with a wrinkled shirt. I shall never forget his shame as I ordered him to take off his shirt so that I could iron it. He unbuttoned it slowly, handed it to me, and stood, shrinking before me and a class of giggling girls in the dirtiest, ragged underwear I had ever seen. I quickly ironed the shirt, thrust it at him, and marched him back to the auditorium. The rehearsal went smoothly, and Robert performed well as usual. I delivered my final directions to the cast. I want everyone in costume on stage tonight at 7 o'clock, and don't be late. I don't want any last-minute worries, I added, glaring at Robert. 7 o'clock came. Most of the students were in their places, but no Robert. 7.15 came. All the students were in their places and most of the audience, but still no Robert. 
I was wild. 725 came and still no Robert. In desperation, I told another student to read Robert's part so the show could go on. Just as the curtain opened at 730, I saw a rather pale, shaken Robert slip into his place. I sighed with relief but vowed I would let him know the anxiety that he had caused me. Robert performed as if he were inspired. Never have I heard St. Luke given with such simple meaning and tenderness. He held the surprised audience spellbound. After the show, I received congratulations from parents, but no one from Robert's family was there. When the crowd had gone, I found him waiting for me. I immediately unleashed my fury, telling him how worried I had been. Why were you so late? I demanded. He answered softly. Just as I was leaving the house, we got a phone call from the hospital. My mother died tonight, but I knew you were depending on me, so I came as soon as I could. The years have flown, but the lesson the drama teacher learned lingers. No matter how many Christmas programs I direct, the angel who proclaims peace on earth, goodwill toward men, for me, will always be an eighth-grade misfit boy named Robert in a dyed red shirt. From all of us over at the Cultural Hall, wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, a Happy Holidays, all of the holidays, literally the 13, 12 days of Articles, Faith of Christmas, with everyone, Merry Christmas to all, and to all uh, next part of this episode. Thanks, Richie, and thanks to everybody over there at the Cultural Hall for taking part in our little exercise of detente this holiday season. Let that be a message unto all of you that the first shall be last and the last shall be first and the enemies shall be frenemies and the friends shall be enemies. But hey, now let's go over to Germany. Previous guest of the show, Angela Brower, is a mezzo-soprano with a beautiful voice. She has sung with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. You can check out our episode with her from a few years ago if you uh, just search for Angela Brower. And uh, she's going to talk a little bit about what Christmas is like when you're alone, when you live abroad, when you're away from your family, when you have to develop some of your own traditions uh, in a new area. So my relationship with Christmas has evolved over the years. Um, my Christmas looks a little different than most people's. I am single. I'm also a performer. So usually I'm alone or uh, working on Christmas. Very, very rarely have I been able to actually go home and visit family on Christmas. Um, so um, it's been interesting as I've found myself in this situation and think have been thinking about Christmas and what it means to me and trying to find ways to fill the Christmas spirit and create traditions for myself. Um, a good friend of mine, my best friend actually, uh, five years ago said, hey, let's start doing these carols. Let's do 
let's do Christmas carols. Let's do 12 days of Christmas. So we started singing these carols and we've shared them now on social media the past five years and everybody, <laughs> it's kind of caught on and, and everyone always comments, well, this is the best Christmas tradition ever and I look forward to it. It's not Christmas unless I hear these carols from you guys. So it's been really fun to establish that tradition. Uh, so I'd like to uh, share this with you all now. I hope you enjoy this Christmas carol and have a very warm and special Christmas, no matter where you are, if you're alone or with your, or with family or friends, Christmas might look really different this year than it ever has, but I hope you still feel the spirit of Christmas this year. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to you, O That was beautiful. What's that, everyone? You want another one? Angela will give you another one. And get ready for me to butcher some German here. Ready? Es ist ein Ross Etsprungen. You'll know it when you hear it. Es ist ein Rosensprungen aus einer German, the language of love. That was beautiful. Angela, thank you so much for uh, coming back and 
sharing with us your talents and your gifts, and in reminding us that you can find Christmas cheer, you can find hope, you can find togetherness in all sorts of different circumstances, wherever you may be, whatever you may be. And I think that's a really powerful message. We're going to throw it over now to one of our hosts, Jared Gillins, who has a story about finishing his mission around the holidays and a lot in his family also changed in the time he was gone. And there were some great and even difficult lessons uh, to take away from that, but it was very impactful for him. came home from my mission in Phoenix, Arizona on December 22nd, 2000, just in time for Christmas. But my family picked me up at the airport in Salt Lake, 835 miles from where I had wanted to land at Seattle-Tacoma International. My parents had decided to move from the Seattle suburbs to American Fork just two months prior to my homecoming, so I came home to a place that felt foreign. My mom and dad spent the next four years living in my sister's basement and for the next eight months, I holed up in their spare bedroom. When I got there, my parents' move was so recent that my room was wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling boxes. A bed frame and mattress were propped up against the far wall, barricaded by cardboard cubes packed with 30 years of accumulated belongings. For several weeks, I slept on the couch and spent portions of each day tunneling toward the bed wall, helping my parents unpack and organize while I dreamed of relative privacy. When they picked me up at the airport, I was overjoyed to see my family, but I felt ragged. Worse for wear, like the two suits I had purchased at J.C. Penney in late 1998. In the last few days of my mission, I had developed what might still be the worst head cold of my life. It settled neatly in my throat and burned quietly, strangling my larynx and making breathing uncomfortable. I attempted to speak briefly at the final testimony meeting at the mission home. I hardly ground out a few coherent sentences before sitting back down. The group going home that transfer was unusually large, since it was Christmas time. Several missionaries who would have otherwise returned in February were given the option to take off one transfer early, and they took it. There was no room in the mission home for me to sleep, so I was offered a humble stall at the AP's apartment, where I weakly climbed into the top bunk of a sheetless bed, Sister Ferguson gave me two Tylenol PM tablets, but I stayed awake hacking in spite of them. I felt bad for the poor elder on the bottom bunk who I kept up all night. The next morning, a group of us were driven to the airport to board a flight to SLC. I sat next to a nice fellow from Argentina and was grateful to squeak out just a little more Spanish before fully returning to English-speaking life. I cried as the plane took off and we left the Valley of the Sun behind. Honestly, I... Never really liked that place. A too hot city adorned in tones of brown and concrete. But I loved a lot of people there, and my life in Phoenix had shaped me profoundly. I was overjoyed to see my family, and grateful that everyone had come for Christmas and my homecoming. It was also a little shocking. Of course, people change in two years. I definitely had. But my dad had changed a lot. Depression and chronic pain had driven him from overweight to obese. His gray hair had turned white and much more of it had fallen out. Though he was happy to see me, he was no longer happy. He should have had another 25 years in him, but at that point he had just over 10 remaining. 
Still, I was back with my family. Someone proposed that we head over to the Joseph Smith Memorial Building and watch the relatively new Testaments film. I still felt terrible, but I was game for anything with this group. We watched the movie, got some food, and went to the Steak Center in American Fork for my release. I don't remember much about my mission debrief. What I do remember from that evening is that as soon as we got back to my sister's place, freshly decommissioned, I was told to sit down and stay awake. It was imperative that I watch one movie immediately before anyone could spoil the ending. So I ended the first day of my post-mission life watching The Sixth Sense. I love my family's sense of priority. The next night we watched U571 for similar reasons. Never mind It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street. Make sure those plot twists are fresh. That Christmas was difficult for everyone. I was adjusting to a new kind of life and a new home that I didn't expect to return to. My parents were dealing with worsening health and financial problems that drove them to live in their daughter's basement for four years. My sister's family had their own adjustments to make on the other side of that situation. We all felt poor, run down, and brokenhearted, including my other three siblings. We agreed that instead of exchanging purchase gifts that year, we would give things that didn't cost money. I don't remember what most of us offered each other, only that my brother-in-law burned everyone custom mix CDs with track listings by request. Napster was still alive, but slowly dying in late 2000. But nobody missed the traditional exchange that year. Everyone wrote or made something from the heart and did their best to infuse love into something simple. It was, despite everything else, a happy Christmas. I was happy to be home, although it wasn't my home, and happy to be relatively healthy, although I was sick, and happy to be warm and clothed and fed, even though we were poor. I was happy to be with my parents, though they weren't the same people I had left two years before. I was happy to be with my family at Christmas. And, like my family knew I would be, I was happy that nobody had managed to tell me that, spoilers, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Merry Christmas, Twim family. God bless us to be happy here at the end of 2020. Thanks, Jared. I imagine many of us can't feel that the end of 2020 can come quickly enough, uh, but I appreciate his perspective in that story. Imagine all of that changing in your life in the time you were gone on a mission. And you're so isolated when you're a missionary. You, you can only hear about these things potentially developing, but you come into a totally different situation. And I think as we're going into uh, Christmas time this weekend, and it's been a weird year, but we'll still hopefully be with some loved ones and, and there will be gifts and we will exchange many wonderful things but let's not forget the real reason. Let's not forget that Christmas can be so meaningful if we take the time to tailor simple gifts, even like a mixtape or a mix CD for a family member. And that can have monumentally greater value compared to other things we might give them. I'm thrilled to uh, now pass the baton over to a previous guest of the show twice, the star of BYU TV's Show Offs, uh, Once I Was a Beehive, and the upcoming sequel to it, Once I Was Engaged. Da-da-da-da-da. Hilarious comedian Haley Smith has a Christmas story to share with us. So there's one Christmas season from my childhood that I will never forget. 
I think I was in seventh or eighth grade and we lived in the suburbs of Chicago at the time. And most every year for Christmas, we just went to a local tree lot to pick out our Christmas tree. But this year we wanted to do something exciting and grandiose. So we decided to chop down our own Christmas tree. I don't remember too much about the drive to go get our tree, but I remember it was a considerable distance away since we lived pretty close to the city. And I do remember that we found the perfect Christmas tree, cut it down ourselves, and my dad carefully tied it down to the roof of our car with twine. Everyone was in a festive mood as we drove home. We were cruising along. We were all singing Christmas songs at the top of our lungs and feeling so excited about our adventure when all of a sudden I heard the sickening sound of snapping twine and turned to watch as our tree sailed off the top of our car and landed right in the middle of the freeway. All of us started screaming, pull over, pull over the tree, pull over. And my dad quickly pulled over and slowly eased his way backwards on the shoulder to get closer to the tree as the rest of us just looked on, just staring in (laughs) helpless shock as we saw our little tree sitting out in the middle of the five lane freeway. Luckily, there wasn't too much traffic and we were feeling pretty optimistic as my dad jumped out of the car and prepared to make a dash for the tree. And I'm a little ashamed to admit that at this point, I was less concerned about my dad's safety and more concerned about Christmas being ruined. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, a giant semi-truck appeared and plowed right over our tree. My mom and all four of us kids screamed and I think some of us started crying And I'll just never forget the violence of all those needles flying everywhere. And we're just standing there watching in helpless horror. After that, (laughs) my dad successfully retrieved the tree and we got it reattached to the roof as best we could. And we continued our journey home, but this time there were no Christmas songs and we just kind of sat there (laughs) in a trance. Uh, Once home, My mom did her best to hide the damage. She turned the splintered truck to the corner and tried to arrange the battered boughs as best she could. It dried out much more quickly than any of our other trees and dropped its needles as if it were (laughs) weeping over its own trauma. But we loved and cherished that tree until the bitter end. I'll never forget that memory not only because it's straight out of a Christmas vacation movie, but also because I really did learn the important lesson that things that are broken and beaten down are still beautiful and worthy of love. And also, never use twine. (laughs) And I think that those are both really great lessons to remember at this time of year. Merry Christmas! Thank you so much, Haley. That was great. And you're right. That sounds like it came straight out of Christmas vacation. I had something kind of similar happen once when I was transporting a Christmas tree from a Christmas tree farm and my sister and I tied it down to my Camry. Um, basically, it didn't tie very well. So we stopped at a supermarket and bought ribbon. And so I'm driving around town with colored ribbon trying to hold this tree down and this tree we we wrapped it like ferociously at this point with any sort of string-like substance we could find 
just to get it to my house. So I feel your pain a little bit there. That was a good story. Um, as the MC of this exciting endeavor, it is incumbent upon me to share with you uh, Christmas tales. And I guess I'll start off with one that I find a little bit more amusing, and I want to preface it by saying, Dad, I love you. Um, I don't know if the year was 2005, 2006. I'm not quite sure. I just remember I was at BYU at the time, and it was I was home for Christmas. And uh, we were over at my dad's house. Traditionally, we spend Christmas Eve with my father. My parents are are divorced, and that's when we do Christmas with my dad. And so we were at my dad and then stepmom's house, um, just doing our Christmas stuff. You know, we'd make dinner and sing and have typical Christmas good times. And we're opening gifts, and my dad's always been a very, very generous person when it comes to gifts, uh, far more so than he should be. I mean, I really mean that. Uh, he's always been far more giving than than either I deserve or than he even needs to be in a situation, and uh, that's never been lost on me. But I opened this gift. It must be probably near the end. You know, it was something big and heavy. So I figured I'd I'd wait until uh, until we were wrapping up. Ha! Puns. Um, so that I could go out with my my ringer. And I opened this box. And I had no idea what it was. I was staring at some something that looked like I don't know, almost the size of uh, almost the size of a box. Maybe you'd put like a record player. And if you were to ship a record player, probably around that size box. And I'm staring at it and it says like pizza oven. And I'm thinking, what is this? What is going on? And my dad was so happy about this gift because he said, now you can be the pizza man. And I believe he was, he, he in his mind, he was, uh, he was easing a pain point for me in that he was providing me an oven in which I could make pizza. Now, bear in mind, this is the sort of oven you would see at a uh, at a convenience store or you know a gas station store or something like that. If you're heating up like a frozen pizza, they sell at one of these places at a Seven Eleven or something. Okay, it's that sort of device. I don't think you would ever put raw dough with toppings, just like a fresh pizza, and put it in an oven like this. I'm not sure what would happen if you did. Uh, I never found out. Um, but my dad was so earnest in that he was delivering me this this gift, and he kept saying it. He's like, "They're going to call you the pizza man." They're going to call you the pizza man. Now, the beauty of this was, this became a bit of an inside joke with my sister and I. And I'm like, I'm the pizza man now. I am the pizza man. And this 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 beautiful pizza oven was just a part of my life from that point forward. And uh, my dad doesn't listen to podcasts or social. I could basically say anything I want about my father and it'll never come back to him. But if any of you know him, don't let him know that I'm telling you this story. Because uh, I don't want to seem ungrateful. But now it's been you know 15 years or something. And the enthusiasm of of christening me the pizza man like that that was what was going to get me a wife at BYU and ironically my now wife and I actually graduated at the same time but I didn't know her then um that's what was going to get me there that would make me the social god I sought to be I'd be the pizza man the pizza man everybody um it's a totally pointless story but uh I've it's just it's sat with me for years about being the pizza man and the most one of the most random gifts I've ever ever received, and I love the thought that went behind it, and I love how meaningful it was to everyone involved. So Jared's story made me think about my mission. I was thinking about what to share, and as I've been working my way through this episode, editing things, you know, Jared coming home from his mission, I was thinking about meaningful Christmases. 
you know, it's fine. We're very jokey in my family, so I think we naturally think of stories like the pizza oven. Or I think last year I shared the story about the Beavis and Butthead calendar, which remains a family tradition now, 27 years later. Um, but I'm thinking about my mission and the two Christmases I spent as a missionary. Now, I was set apart as a missionary on January 2nd when I went out. So for me, Christmas was a pretty big time uh, placeholder in the sense of when it was Christmas my first year in my mind, I was halfway done, right? That was sort of a big thing in my mind. And Christmas my second year was, that was basically it. And so I think to that first year when I'd been out for almost a year and that Christmas was really special. Obviously we wanted to call our families and we did all that and that was wonderful. Um, One of the perks of having divorced parents is I got to do two phone calls. So that was fun too. But what it comes to mind, and I wish I actually had my mission journal with me right now to, to look at the details, we planned this big Christmas dinner as missionaries in our area in the southern part of Spain. And we planned it primarily with a bunch of Romanians we had been teaching. There are lots of Romanians all over Europe, of course, that are immigrating to different countries in Europe, but many in Spain and many in Italy because the language is, is a little bit easier. Romanian's a Romance language. It's probably easiest to pivot from that to Italian than maybe to Spanish from there. So there were lots of Romanians all over Spain. We taught Romanians. Everyone taught Romanians. And we'd, we'd sort of befriended these Romanians who some were taking the discussions and others were just sort of hanging around. And they thought it, they thought it would be fun to pair up with members of our ward and have like a big Romanian Christmas in our cultural hall. And, you know, some of the memories are blurry at this point, but I, I just remember this beautiful afternoon when members of our ward, uh, when who were either Spaniards or immigrants from South America or immigrants from Africa, of which there were many, and all these Romanians we were teaching, who, if memory serves, I don't know if any of them joined the church or anything, but we had this, this great gathering, and we didn't just celebrate a Romanian Christmas. We let everyone... Um, explain their own traditions from the countries they were from, for example, because it was so multicultural in our ward. And it was so meaningful. And I can still, I can see the picture in my mind of us sitting in a table setup that was in kind of a U shape, you know, very conference room like, and uh, everyone enjoying these meals and these sweet times. That's just a sweet memory to me. There wasn't a a huge overarching lesson in it, but uh, it reminded me a lot in that area I was in, for example, of how valuable it is when we strive to be one, uh, when we strive to find our commonalities, when we strive not to let our differences define us, which is something that's increasingly easy in the age of social media, you know, in the ages of tribalism that we're living in. But we remember the admonition from Christ, you know, if you are not one, you are not mine. And I saw that manifest by members and investigators and friends in the community alike, just convening and celebrating the birth of the Savior, and also just having a fun time and celebrating one another's heritage. That was It was wonderful. And it taught me a lot about the importance of that. Now, if, if we were to fast forward to the the second Christmas on my mission, it was very, very, very different for me. Um, this time around, we had sort of a gathering. I was in the Barcelona mission. A mission ran kind of north-south. So the southern half of the mission all gathered in one area for like a mega zone conference type Christmas party thing. And as you might imagine in situations like this, usually they ask any missionaries who are going home to bear their testimony. And this was extra meaningful because it was half of the mission and many of the elders from my group were there. All of our sisters, of course, had since gone home and we got to bear our testimony. But the thing that jumps out at me the most was uh, after partying and feasting and having fun and um, having a great testimony meeting, we also got to watch the movie, The Other Side of Heaven, which I'm sure many of you have seen. 
It's a great movie. I don't mind. Church movies have different production values and there's things we pick apart. The Other Side of Heaven is a very earnest film and I, I think it's a, it's a good mission story there. And at the end, of course, all I was thinking about was like, geez, it's like we're leading into December 25th and a week later I'm gone. And that's it. Where have two years gone? Have I accomplished everything I've wanted to in two years? Do I feel like I have given this everything? Do I feel like the Lord is satisfied with my sacrifice? Um, a lot of those thoughts were rushing in my mind this whole time, of course, as, as I propelled towards the end of my mission. But in the closing scenes of the film, when Koli Poki finally is told he has to leave the island and he goes and says his goodbyes to everyone, that's when I about lost it. If you'd have seen Elder Openshaw in the back, he was just sobbing in the back chair just unable to hold it in, realizing, oh my gosh, it's this is actually happening. This is ending. And uh, it's not Christmas related per se, but it was so incredibly meaningful to me to be reminded of how wonderful it was to be able to be a missionary during that time in my life and to serve the people, not just of Spain, but I mean, I think I counted, I taught discussions to people from like 85 countries on my mission or something like that. Uh, that meant a lot to me. And in one, it was one of those moments when everything was distilled into the simple thought of realizing that God was pleased with me and that I was a changed man. And I think like many of you listening, I'm not necessarily thrilled with every decision I made since my mission and I and I did not make decisions or or do everything I thought in my mind when I was coming home like this is how it's going to be, right? You know, you're you're enthused, you get things going. But it was wonderful and service is just a wonderful wonderful thing. What greater gift we can have here during the Christmas season to remember the gift of our savior. To ask ourselves, have we given him everything we can give him? It's a hard year. 2020 has been super hard. I mean, I feel immensely blessed. I'm healthy. My family's fine. We had a baby during all of this and it's been okay. And I recognize that my trials pale in comparison to many others and even many of you listening. It's been a bear of a year. And how what a wonderful blessing it is when there's one week left in the year we can commemorate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We can be extra mindful of what a great gift his atonement is for us and what an incredible miracle it is that he came into the world. Um, that's powerful and that that brings me joy. Way more joy than any of the festivities and the lights and the Christmas spirit and all those other things we talk about. You know, we have a savior and that is something to be celebrated. And I certainly hope all of you will be able to have some time somewhere in there to celebrate it. Uh, as we reflect on even, you know, what President Nelson encouraged us to do a month ago around Thanksgiving. Giving thanks wasn't going to make the pandemic disappear. It wasn't going to make everything get better immediately, but it might make it a bit easier to weather storms and to get through things. And if we can remember the reason for Christmas and remember the importance of the birth of our savior and the, the, the prophecies that were fulfilled and the miracles that he hath wrought. Just those little things will help us inch a little bit closer to a little bit better of a place and things will get better little by little. I'm sorry for 
waxing uber spiritual on you there. But uh, I am grateful for our Savior, and I hope you are as well. From everyone who's taken part in the show this week, thank you very much for taking the time to listen. We hope you have a terrific Christmas and that all your wildest dreams come true. Uh, But seriously, big thanks uh, to Jared, to Josie, to other Jared, to Richie, to Angela, to Haley. Um, It's been a delight to have all of you participate in this. It's, uh, It's fun to put these things together. And honestly, we would love to hear from you. If you have great Christmas stories... We could get them in the bank all the way until next year. Seriously, let me know. You know, Shoot me an email, jeff, G-E-O-F-F, at thisweekinmormons.com. I'd love to hear from you. I hope you have a terrific Christmas season and that you're able to share it with loved ones and, uh, and feel God's love at the same time. So until then, be well, be holy, and be happy. Merry Christmas.